Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. The Ramos Gin Fizz occupies a pretty singular place within the pantheon of classics in that, whether you're making or drinking it, most of what's notable about this cocktail comes before you take a sip. Sure, it's tasty enough and may very well be a decent hangover remedy, but the bulk of the appeal lies in its striking appearance, with a pearly opalescence that draws you in and cloudy head that seems to defy gravity. Now such beauty comes with considerable cost, namely the arm of the bartender or bartenders who need to spend the best part of five to 10 minutes shaking it up. You're probably familiar with this already, especially if you tuned into episode five, but we're revisiting this cocktail today with good reason. And we're doing so with returning guest and friend of the show, Richie Bacato, who among the many different hats that he wears is the co-owner and operator of The Gem in upstate New York. It's there that Richie and co did the unthinkable among most bartenders and put a Ramos Gin Fizz on the menu and was able to do so thanks to a handful of ingenious tweaks and techniques, all of which you can easily recreate yourself, whether it be at home or behind a professional bar. It's a deep dive on salt, charcoal, and Brazilian soapstone. And yes, all of that will make sense very soon as we dive into this week's edition of the Cocktail College Podcast. It's the three Pete, third time he's been here in the studio. First guest to come back for a third appearance. And guess what as well? First time we've explored a cocktail for a second time. So it's a day of firsts and thirds here today. He's the busiest man in the business, at least the busiest man I know in the business. It's Richie Bacato. Richie, thank you so much for joining us today. Always a pleasure. Thank you. It is interesting for me that I think I always thought that the first cocktail we would re-examine would be the martini because of my mm. own personal love of it. Mm. But the topic of today, I think, is fascinating because it's the Ramos Gin Fizz, as people will know from the name, from the episode title there and the intro. But I think when I was thinking about coming into this episode, the first thing that came to my mind, you know, before we dive into anything else, I think the Ramos Gin Fizz as a cocktail, at least my own experience, is one that really does tell you where you are in your cocktail journey, right? So it's not the first cocktail you discover before you become a cocktail enthusiast, right? It's, it, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a very esoteric drink. Then you do discover it. Maybe you see a photo and you're like, oh my God, that looks amazing. Then you get into some of the lore of this cocktail that we're going to get into and you're like, okay, I see this as a challenge. And then maybe that challenge is how big can I make the head? And then, you know, that foam and then you start chasing things. And then maybe you come around to the point where I like to think that I'm at today where I'm like, I care much less about the appearance of this drink than I do the texture and the flavor, and we're going to get into all of that. But w but would you say that is a good example? I'd say that is the most salient synopsis <laughs> of this cocktail that I have ever known. <laughs> I appreciate those kind words. Um, and look, there's a reason we're, we're, we're potentially calling this one Reinventing the Ramos Gym Fizz. And there is a reason, that is the reason, I should say, that this is the first one that we're re-exploring. Um, before we do, though, Maybe some folks haven't listened to that episode yet, or maybe some folks need a reminder, because this is a classic and it has a wonderful history. So can you start by telling us that today? Yeah. So before we talk about how we've 
re-embrace this cocktail in the modern cocktail renaissance or era of modern cocktails, we'll talk about what a fizz essentially is, which is a, what we call a traditional sour. So a traditional sour meaning it has the addition of an egg white. So the protein component is what qualifies it as a traditional sour that is then topped with soda water. So this is essentially a Collins or a highball with egg white. These were made popular during the mid 19th century upon the advent of charged or sparkling water. Um, and the use of egg white in cocktails was predominantly a way to ease the pain from a bothersome hangover. So, uh, <laughs> some of the more common ones, uh, from, from the Jerry Thomas and Harry Johnson era would be the Saratoga brace up, which is, a a fizz, uh, with, uh, cognac and, and an absinthe rinse. Um, uh, that one is, is actually quite good. People enjoy that or the, the morning glory fizz, um, which would be scotch, lemon, sugar, and an absinthe rinse. And of course, uh, soda water. So, and then, of course, we're going to talk today about the ubiquitous New Orleans fizz, also known as the Ramos gin fizz. So this combination of protein from the egg white along with sugar, citrus, and spirit, and a splash of soda, it was an all-inclusive hair of the dog, mm -hmm. if you will. Um, and this would, <laughs> this would serve to clear the cobwebs mm -hmm. um, and restore order to the day. But nowadays, people drink these as much as they would the next day as they do the night before. So um, they've become quite popular, quite common. Uh, and I really do want to talk about the things that you mentioned uh, just in the initial yeah. preamble, if you will, because I think that those points are really important to, to, to recognize, especially with the evolution of this style of cocktail, this fizz. Yeah. And, and, you know, I talked about there maybe as kind of a personal journey that I'm sure other people go through too, but I think it's also perhaps indicative of cocktail culture, modern cocktail culture since the cocktail renaissance, you know, and kind of where we went and, and maybe we went really far out in one direction and then maybe we start to come back. And I mean, that is true of trends in all forms of art and culture and life and, you know, fashion, you know, trends are waves. We go up, we go down. And, and, and you know, that's just a part of that. That's no, that's definitely not like a um, indictment of anyone or not a criticism. But I think that's a really interesting aspect of this cocktail because I, I, I think you'd be hard pressed to come up with a visually more stunning drink than this. Uh, by all means, and by its components alone, it is on paper a very rational cocktail in a sense that as we just mentioned if you've had a, a a big night and the next day you're interested in getting a little bit of the hair of the dog that protein from the egg white or if there's a cream component a dairy component that will fortify you mm -hmm. a little boost from the sugar some citrus to balance you out perhaps there are bitters involved and of course hydration from water content <laughs> It's all in one. It's it's pound for pound. This is a very, very important cocktail in many ways. Uh, yet I've drank so few of them throughout my life. Me too. <laughs> and, Me too. And and having presided over many bars and sh having shaken thousands of them for, for guests, um, seemingly I would imagine that I might have been more keen to embrace this cocktail myself, but yet I've nary i don't think i've enjoyed a single fizz in its entirety mm -hmm. i think i've only tasted them taste it. it's so interesting that you say that too because it is one of those cocktails that exactly like you say I, I 
I don't know whether it's you feel bad to order one as well. It's certainly something that you learn when you're learning about cocktails and you learn about the Ramos Gin Fizz. You're like, oh, that's a bit of an asshole move to order that <laughs> at a bar. And I've only, I, I remember, I, I think it might have come up on this podcast once actually, but I do remember ordering one and seeing this classic procession of the bartender was like, hey, I'm up for the challenge. I want to do this. I was actually with our old producer, Keith. We were down in Charleston and Keith had never had one. And so the guy's like, yeah, I'm up for it. And we saw they literally passed the shaker tin yes. around the bar, five minutes of solid shaking. And I couldn't help but wonder at the time, does that five minutes really make a difference? Like, is there a difference between three and five or is that just hyperbole? So we go back to the history of this yes. cocktail. And that's amazing that this happened because that is very traditional in a sense because this, this Ramos Gin Fizz as we know it, we go back to 1888, uh, Henry C. Ramos at his bar, the Imperial Cabinet Saloon in New Orleans, and it was originally known as the New Orleans Fizz. And so before Prohibition, what would happen at that bar is exactly what you just mentioned. Ramos w would pass the shaker from person to person behind the bar, and they would shake until they couldn't take it any longer, which would be upwards of 10 minutes, no less than 10 <laughs> minutes. And so that's a long time in the modern cocktail bar, which makes this drink in many ways not viable during periods of heavy commerce. Sure. And this is why this drink became the thing that modern bartenders would whine about and lament. And as a result of that, I personally, when I was serving at Milk and Honey and Little Branch and, and behind the bar there in the early days, would make it a point to make the Ramos one of my bartender's choices throughout the evening and i would also <laughs> shake it with my left my less dominant arm as a point because i wanted to get better and 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 just face the fear and face the frustration and accept that this was a cocktail like any other it became just like a daiquiri for me after a while um would you be handing that off to your colleagues as well, or are they like, no, Richie, this you're you're making this your one of your bartender choice selections, so this is on you. Yeah, I don't think many other people uh, were interested in that philosophy, and and I'm a bit of a hypocrite, as we'll soon find out, because the way I've since <laughs> determined to, to make that cocktail, set it, I set out to make it quite differently. But we talk about how it was popularized, and it's it's not a surprise. So. At the Roosevelt Hotel in New Orleans, this drink became very popular, and, and the governor at the time, Huey Long, was very fond of it. So sometime just post-Prohibition, I think uh, 1935, around this time in July, uh, Governor Long brings a bartender named Sam Guarino from the Roosevelt Hotel in New Orleans, brings him to New York, to the New Yorker Hotel, where you can still see that beautiful sign lit yeah. up from Central Park. And, and he brings this bartender to the New Yorker Hotel specifically to show the staff there how to make this cocktail properly so that he could enjoy it anytime that he was in town. So it's interesting to hear these stories about how the popularity of this cocktail and many others came to New York, which has since become the mecca, if you will, of the modern cocktail. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and, and you know, originating in what would have been Probably, you know, I think we can all agree, the original mecca of the cocktail, New Orleans, 
Uh, I think it's funny you mentioned another drink earlier, the uh, Saratoga Brace Up, which, you know, cognac and absinthe, there can nary be a more New Orleans cocktail than <laughs> yeah. that, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it sounds like, a, you know, an original Sazerac, but, um, you know, with the fizz aspect. Yeah. Um, something in my preparation for this too, you know, I've, uh, I, I, I dove into Embry because, you know, I, I like his takes. And I'll be honest with you, I was a little bit disappointed that he didn't have a spicier take for this cocktail, you know, figuratively speaking, because he does usually like to be, a you know, contrarian or whatever, but... That I'll be honest too. That's where I learned that this was a New Orleans fizz with, and you know, this is kind of a spoiler alert, but you know, with um, orange blossom water added. And he said the same thing though, minimum five minutes. So it's just, you know, that's always stuck throughout history. And I do find that fascinating that it's persisted. Yeah. So you had guys like Embry, uh, a lot of the stuff that I've read uh, and, and how I came to really know this cocktail was through Charles Baker. Obviously, another guy who traveled a lot and, and was, was learning about cocktails all over the world. Um, so, yeah, those two guys and their seminal tomes on, on cocktails in general, technique, preparation, um, execution, and where these drinks were made, who was making them, where they came from. The, the overall zeitgeist of a cocktail is really is captured quite well. I think that Baker, surprisingly, as an attorney and not a bartender, has a lot of important points about technique in his in his writing, which mm-hmm. I truly appreciate, whereas Baker is a little bit more of a reporter, mm-hmm. which I also appreciate. He's a- a, Embry would have been the yeah. uh, the lawyer, sorry. Yeah, yeah Embry, sorry, excuse yeah. me. Embry the lawyer, Baker yeah. the journalist. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. And so... Uh, Embry was kind of like the, the, you know, these days, the guy on Twitter who's a whiskey expert but who has nothing to do with the whiskey industry... And he's just out there like calling people out or I'll be honest, there's guys out there like we will publish an article or anyone will publish an article. And this guy, you know, pe- you'll have people just reposting it being like, this is bullshit. This is wrong and whatever. And it's like, what do you do, man? You're a fucking dentist. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, so I like the fact that Embry was the original version of that. Now, if he existed today and, and working for a drinks publication, I'm not sure I would appreciate his feedback. But yeah, it's, it's interesting. No, it's, it, but as they say, everyone has an opinion. And, <laughs> uh, and in this day and age, as someone who's not involved in social media and never has been, Lucky thankfully, you. yes, I've, I've censored myself and, uh, and I've also been blind to all the controversy. But I would imagine, yeah, that... With a title like The Fine Art of Mixing Drinks, it's it, it's a lovely title, but does he really understand mm-hmm. the fine art of mixing drinks <laughs> outside of his law office? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. And I think there are two good points there, and this is a bit of a tangent, but there are two sides to it, right? There are two sides to the bar, and you have the behind-the-bar perspective, and you also have the in-front-of-the-bar sitting-at-the-bar perspective, and and the two need to come together there. So it's, it's important to have his as that, but... Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Like I said, I was surprised that he just kind of let this one be. Maybe it's because, like you said, he's not he's not mixing drinks himself and he didn't want to dive too much into this one and give it the preparation time at home. So you mentioned that there's cream and egg white in this. So I imagine the fact that you have both of those in there does add to that necessary time to shake this up properly. Is there anything else about this drink that kind of makes it challenging um, and would, had you not come up with a solution, which we're going to get into, make you avoid putting it on the menu? So time, 
It is you time. Said, so time is number one. And time is something, we're fighting two things in the modern cocktail bar. Two things predominantly, especially in this, this heat in New York City. Time and temperature. And we've talked about this before. We'll talk about it again. Anytime we talk about ice and anytime we talk about cocktails, time and temperature are the two main battles the bar the bartender has to fight so time is is of the essence as they say um but also energy and effort and when you're in the middle of a very busy shift energy in a sense that it requires several different ingredients and we'll talk about how we build and, and execute this cocktail but a significant amount of shaking as well uh <laughs> so so lastly and something that's also really important um in terms of just brass tacks bartending, what happens on any given shift is that when you make a Ramos or any variety of fizz, your shakers are going to be contaminated, for lack of a better term, with eggs and dairy. Mm -hmm. And so you'll have a sticky mess on your hands. Uh, and then your shakers have to be run through the dishwasher prior to being used again. And lastly, but not least, if this cocktail appears on a menu, it's likely going to become immediately popular because as you mentioned it is aesthetically pleasing mm -hmm. so it falls into the category of a gimme a gimme cocktail is anything that comes over the bar and a guest three seats down sees it and says give me one of those they don't even know what it is <laughs> so you're gonna make lots of them and uh as a result you'll have eggy shakers and whiny bartenders so <laughs> <laughs> this cocktail has always presented a challenge, mm -hmm. suffice to say. One additional challenge, maybe, or one additional aspect of this that definitely makes it very appealing that you very are very fortunate to be immune from <laughs> is the fact that once someone sees that drink, not only do they want to try it, but they want to post it on social media. They see it coming out and they're like, I need to get that photo of that. So immediately, there you go. It stands to reason, therefore, that if you're going to, have a drink that is the hill that you want to die on, right? That you're going to say, all right, we're going to go the extra mile for this. This is probably not a very good candidate for it. It's not. It, it is... Uh... Like you probably need... You, you would need to factor in the fact, okay, we're going to sell a ton of these. It's Friday night. Or, you know, maybe it's a brunch shift. Even worse, to be honest with you. <laughs> then I need an extra person on staff or maybe an extra guy, you know, bar back in to, to make sure we have fresh shakers all the time. And, you know, making sure that cream is cold. Ideally, maybe the egg whites are closer to room temperature. It's just a lot going on. And you're like, really, all of this for the Ramos Gin Fizz? And, and, and yet our goal in service in hospitality is to, of course, for our guests make them appreciate the efforts that we make to make them happy through our cocktails and mm -hmm. the care that we put into them. So it's, it should be, as I said earlier, it should, none of what we just mentioned should even be an issue. It should be like building and shaking a daiquiri, three ingredient cocktail. A Ramos should be no different mm -hmm. in theory. Yet in practice, unfortunately, the reality is that it is not. It requires this great deal of effort. And to put <laughs> it on a menu is somewhat of a fool's errand mm -hmm. in, in many people's uh, estimations. And then I'm going to and yet you, <laughs> or <laughs> and yet your point here. Yes. Because and yet you decided to do so when you opened the gem. Um, before, we, before we dive into your preparation and wondering why... Or maybe this comes into it, but can you tell us about the gem and how that differs from some of the other spots that you're known for, whether where you've worked before or that you currently uh, operate now? Yeah, so the, the gem came about 
um, as a union of four partners who met at William Farmer and Sons in Hudson, New York. Uh, Hudson, coincidentally, being the place where in 1806, uh, a well-known quotation from the Balance and Columbian Repository uh, gives us an early but not the first uh, written definition of what this compound that we're talking about here as a cocktail is comprised of, and I quote, a stimulating liquor composed of spirits of any kind, sugar, water, and bitters. It is vulgarly called a bitter sling. <laughs> so here we are in Hudson, New York in around 2015, 2016, and Sasha Petrosky was living in Hudson and working on the bar program at William Farmer and Sons with Kristen Keck and Chef Kirby Farmer, who run a glorious restaurant uh, and a stunningly beautiful inn uh, on the premises. Growing empire down there. Yeah. Phenomenal. Yeah. Those guys are taking over Hudson and, 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 you know, with good reason. Yes. It's not just somewhere you have to stop by when you're in Hudson. It's you get on the train, you go up to Hudson, you go visit that. It's wonderful what they're doing up there. Everything that Kristen and Kirby do is genuine mm -hmm. and bona fide. And so uh, after Sasha's tragic and, and untimely passing, um, he had just only gotten started with the bar program at Farmer and Sons. Um, but I, of course, was there um, and was given the honor of continuing his work on that bar program to, uh, to drive it home. And I was bound, of course, by loyalty um, to deliver the best representation of the milk and honey and Dutch Kills bar pedigree that I could muster. Um, so my wife and I, Patty being my wife, spent several months up there um, and we we were actually living on site uh, at Farmer and Sons um, <laughs> for much of every week. Uh, and we, we fell in love with the farmers and um, a great lasting relationship was born of that. So as I was training the bar staff and I established what is probably the first in-house crystal clear block ice production program in a bar in upstate, all of upstate New York, um, we, we set that up there and um, made every effort to really respect the intentions of the man who redefined the blueprint of how a cocktail should be made and, and appreciated. And he subsequently shook his final cocktail behind the bar at Farmer and Sons wow. 109 years after that quote that we just read uh, was printed there That's in wild. Hudson. So these were big shoes to fill. Uh, and I know that because I wore his patent leather shoes at my wedding and also at Eric Alpern's wedding. He was something uh, of a dresser, was he not? <laughs> he was a smart dresser, mm -hmm. no doubt. Uh, and and um, anyway, as a result of that experience, so the, the Farmer and Sons and Dutch Kills families grew close over the years. Um, sometime around 2019, my wife Patty came across a property in Bolton Landing, uh, which is a beautiful village on the shores of Lake George upstate, uh, where she had vacationed and spent much of her time throughout her youth and her family is situated up there. So she's very much got local roots. Um, and this property consisted of a, a dilapidated old liquor store that was still in operation and had been operating since just post-prohibition um, and, and a derelict uh, restaurant next door that had been dark for almost 15 years. Uh, so the farmers and the Bocatos spent the next few years tirelessly uh, <laughs> renovating both spaces as if we weren't busy enough. Um, as if there wasn't a pandemic no, in there. No, we, we, we worked right through it. Um, and uh, we brought forth 
Little Gem Liquors first, um, and then subsequently the Gem. Um, and throughout that time, you, you might go up there and see Chef Kirby and, uh, and myself uh, destroying asbestos tiles and uh, removing them from the premises. <laughs> so we, we very much got our hands dirty to make it happen. Um, but I feel as though the results have been exceptional. Uh, and I have been and remain really proud of mm-hmm. what we've accomplished there. And I and I asked that question as well, just in terms of like, how does that differ from, you know, other bars that you've been involved in or, or, or currently still are, right? And because I do find that fascinating where it's like, like you said, or the way you describe it, two families coming together with different backgrounds, but similar influences, right? To work on a project and then start something new, but also start something like, again, Hudson now, I'm sure, is very different than it was 20 years ago. I mean, Hudson now is... It, basically an extension of the city, uh, a very nice one. Um, but Bolton Landing, you know, that's that's way up there. You're past Saratoga Springs. Uh, it, it's a very different New York. And and also having had the fortune of coming to visit you guys up there and, and you know, spending some time, it's very different than the rest of what's available there at Bolton Landing. And it's, it's, it's a, without trying to feel like too much of a New York bar. And I don't want to get hung up in that too much either way, um, but I do think that is is very striking that you you're able to offer that experience that's kind of like it's New York quality, New York City quality, um, but it has a very different take. And so I'm keen to hear why this becomes the place where you put Ramos Gin Fizz on the menu and how. So you're exactly right. This is deep. This is not the Catskills. Mm-hmm. This is deep in the Adirondack Park, which is... Mm-hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong, we can look at the statistics, but I believe it is the biggest, uh, it's not a national park, but is the biggest uh, in terms of square miles forest in the Northeast, certainly in, perhaps in the country. Actually, Patty knows the statistics a little better than I do, but I'm from Brooklyn. I'm, <laughs> I'm a New York City native. Yeah. This is very far from home for me. Um, yet I immediately appreciated the beauty and the importance of this place. A small anecdote, um, we had a gentleman come into the gym one evening and say the last time he was there was in one of the previous iterations of the bar, which had been in operations or, or had been a bar at certain points in time going back a hundred years and different, uh, under different management. said the last time he was there physically in that building, he was dragging a bear into the bar that he had shot so that they could weigh it in the kitchen. <laughs> and this was common. <laughs> I'm hoping he didn't turn up to the gem with some uh, some <laughs> livestock. <laughs> we, we, we didn't we didn't get any of his uh, no, we, no. We, we didn't get any his game. No, no game. There's <laughs> there's no game at the gym. That's not true. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we we yeah. I think it was important for me. Um, I think I wanted to feature this cocktail at the gym as a challenge. So like. Captain Ahab. This was the the white whale or the white rhino. Uh, we've t- we've talked a lot about hunting. We're going to get in big trouble now. We're, we're, we're raising taboo subjects, but in a historical sense. So uh, some of these are pests. I'm just going to say some of these need to be controlled. <laughs> the, the shit that I will never have to hear about because I don't have social media. Yeah, there so, you go. <laughs> but yeah, it was a challenge. It was a challenge to to engage and and rise above the stigma of what has historically been considered a tedious cocktail for the modern bartender to execute. And so case in point, when I was R&Ding what we'll talk about as the the drink that eventually made it to the menu at Dutch Kills, my staff were less than thrilled 
with my initial efforts in many ways. Um, and so it was important for me to serve this cocktail in this manner, several hundred miles away from, as we said, what is the Mecca of cocktails. And it made me really proud when people like yourself showed up or one notorious Mr. Phil Ward, who found <laughs> himself, yes, yes, uh, found himself drinking one there. And, and it was, it was communicated to me. I don't know if this is true, but that supposedly he declared something along the lines of this was the best Ramos that he ever had. I consider that the mic drop mission accomplished enough said. And that's why I wanted to make this drink at the gym very far away from here. I mean, I'm, I'll be honest as well. Phil told me when I told Phil that I was heading up to, to you know, to visit yourselves, I think it was shortly after we had just had him on the show, actually. He was like, you got to try the Ramos. He's like, and, and also kind of a spoiler alert, we're going to get into this, but he was like, yeah, Richie's got this bar set up with these blenders. He's like, it's phenomenal. Um, I did send him a photo when I was there of the setup. And he's like, what the fuck are you doing? What's this? <laughs> I'm like, it's the blender you were talking about. But anyway, we digress. That's yeah. very Phil. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, so we, we um, it's, it's, it's a beautiful bar top. It's a beautiful design. So the, the, the Ramos is made, as you said, um, in flush mount countertop blenders. So they're actually recessed into, built into the bar top. The bar top is a 400 million year old slab of Brazilian soapstone which is really dope and beautiful in and of itself. But I can't think of another bar, maybe you can, but um, I can't think of another bar who has any such blender stations incorporated into their mise en place like that. So I'm not trying to demand my propers here, but I'm just saying, find me another bar with some fly yeah. shit like that. And, and, and I got to ask you, so, so that is part of the spoiler alert, right? You know, the way that you make this drink, the way that you're able to put it on the menu is the fact that you've decided to use a blender rather than shaking. And we're going to get into how that works as a technique and, and, and your spec a little bit later. But was that part of the consideration? Because 300 million years old, right? For, for a piece of stone. 400. 400 million 400. years old for a piece of stone. You're going to carve a bit out of this here and say, we're going to put a blender. You know, this is where the blender lives. Or was this also part of the fact that, you know, you're a rum drinker, you're a tropical drink lover too, and a lot of those do benefit from being made in blenders, but they're unsightly if it sits on top of the bar. Indeed, and they're noisy. Yes. So my soapstone installer guys would not make the penetrations into the stone. They handed me the drills and said, good luck, pal, because it would be, and when you're making such a precise cut in order to fit that blender, you can easily crack the entire slab, and it's a big problem if Jeez. that happens. So they wanted no part of that. They wanted no. <laughs> <laughs> they wanted no chance that they could perhaps be blamed or held liable for what could have been a grand mistake. Mm -hmm. So I, like I do with many other projects that are potentially not wise and <laughs> uh, and and dangerous, uh, I undertake the the dirty work myself. So yeah, I made the holes myself, and I, I wanted that blender as a component because like you said the frozen cocktail has become somewhat ubiquitous but i used to own a tiki bar back in the day and we did a lot of work with the blenders there yeah. and we we redefined in a sense um 
how the frozen drink was approached uh, and, and, and incorporated into the pantheon of the modern tropical cocktail. And yes, I do love rum, but uh, <laughs> that's, that's, I digress. It's another story. <laughs> but the first time I made the Ramos in a blender was back in 2010. And I'd, I'd never done it that way. And I'd never seen it done that way prior to then. Um, but that, that, would, that would be the first time that I can remember doing that myself mm -hmm. in, in a blender. So 20, so you already had this kind of in the back of your mind where like this is a way that you can do it. And also, like you said, your experience running a tiki bar and, and using or, or familiarizing yourself with blenders from a service point of view and knowing what's required when it comes to, you know, volume of drinks or whatever. And just you were talking earlier about like shaker tins, especially when there's cream and egg perhaps involved. And, you know, just just knowing your way around a bar where a blender is a big part of the bar program. I came to learn that a blender jar is no different from a set of shaker tins. Mm -hmm. You're putting ingredients in there and you're agitating those ingredients with frozen water. And you're hoping that what the result is of that experiment is balanced and potable. And very easy, very easily can you make mistakes in a blender. The, the frozen cocktail is not something that is easy to muster. You, you must take the same pains that you would in a shaker as you would in the blender. Uh, mm -hmm. and, I, and I learned that many years ago and have over the years come to develop different techniques accordingly. However, let's go back to the fact that when you put a blender on a bar top, it's going to be potentially unsightly. It's going to be noisy. However, the one thing that will be guaranteed to happen is it will get everyone's attention. Mm -hmm. So what comes out of it had better be good. And better look good, better taste good. Could be our old friend, the Ramos Jim is here. <laughs> and here's something I'm curious about, because you're talking about frozen drinks there. And whereas, you know, this isn't, but it's a drink that we're using a blender for. Is there an argument to say that the blender can be a more precise method of preparation because, and I don't know whether this is what you do, but my experience are, on this show has taught me that when you're making drinks such as this or drinks in a blender, you're using a very specific amount of ice. Therefore, you can control dilution in a way that 10 minutes of shaking you just don't know. And those shaken cocktails, you can't straw it like a stirred drink. Absolutely. So... You have more control because the process is, for lack of a better term, mechanized. Mm -hmm. And this aids in production. So let's be honest, what we're doing here is we're engaging in the business of producing cocktails. It is a business. You must do it efficiently. Mm -hmm. If you do not execute these cocktails with efficacy, they will not be well received. Your guests will be unhappy and your business will not succeed. So uh, in a sense... There are many arguments, obviously this won't work with your ubiquitous martini, but mm -hmm. that a, a blender can create a superior cocktail in many ways, if that's the texture and the style of drink that you're hoping to achieve. Um, so we, we can streamline this process, and we have streamlined this process, and that's why the blender has served as uh, an indispensable tool. Mm -hmm especially with regard to this cocktail. I'm going to ask you a hard question here, maybe. Is there any part of you that feels slightly like the blender is cheating? That it is cheating? Hell no. The proof is in the pudding. When Phil Ward says that's the best Ramos he's ever had, 
That's all I need to hear. Mm -hmm. I don't need to see my staff shaking or myself shaking cocktails for 10 minutes behind the bar <laughs> ad nauseum <laughs> to achieve potentially questionable results as we'll talk about in a moment because the way that the Ramos had been historically built, shaken and served, as you mentioned before, became somewhat of a competition for bartenders to create this a pissing match. Yes, that's what they that's what they call it uh, for, for the past several decades. <laughs> so bartenders the world over are competing with one another mm -hmm. uh, to to innovate techniques by which they conjure this Ramos with an elevated souffle kind of head that you mentioned uh, that seemingly defies gravity by towering above above the glass. But unfortunately, although we used to employ different techniques with ice and setting our Ramos in the freezer. Yep. In fact, That's but, the classic, but when right? you do that, when you do that, you better tell everybody you're working with that there's a live grenade in the in the <laughs> freezer, because if they go in to grab some ice or a coupe or, or something, and they tip your Ramos over, now everybody suffers. There goes ten. There goes ten minutes. Ten minutes, and then you have to clean the freezer and every other piece of ice and glassware inside that that freezer is 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 compromised. So, so we we had all these techniques that would would achieve this 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 head that 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 towers above the glass. But yeah, the only way that you can really accomplish that is by continuously pushing the envelope by adding more and more soda water to the completed cocktail to cause the mm -hmm. head to rise above the rim of the glass. So yes, it's aesthetically pleasing to see mm -hmm. this 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 high it, it looks like what would you how could you describe it a chemical reaction that pushes the the foam in the head but yet it's so firm like a but souffle. That's, but then that's where all the enjoyment is lost because guess what you stick a straw in there to drink this drink which is how you should or classically how this drink is consumed and the straw is going to the bottom of the glass where you've got soda water and, and, and some diluted remnants of the souffle. It's completely undrinkable. It doesn't make sense to me. And also, I should, I should mention too that, you know, I was asking the, the question about cheating just as a, you know, curious, I think it would be, you know, remiss of me not to ask, but I don't see many professional chefs whipping up souffles by hand in the middle of service or whipping up whipped cream, right? That's why you have a KitchenAid. An immersion blender, right? Exactly. And, and think about that term, blender, what does the blender do? It blends the ingredients, creating a harmonious balance, which the Ramos that we've been making for the past 20 years, as you just pointed out, is not. It is horribly imbalanced because of this pissing contest to get the biggest head, mm -hmm. to get the firmest souffle, yet you render it undrinkable. Yeah. So th this was another challenge and, 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 and uh, impetus for the, the motivation for me to want to adopt the blender mm -hmm. at, or readopt it as I had back in the day uh, for this cocktail. And so there, there are things that we're doing differently, but the blender mm -hmm. was, was, if not, yeah, indispensable. Mm -hmm. I like that because that was going to be my next question here. So you got the blender. So does that mean we're using the classic or your classic Ramos Jim Fizz spec and adding some ice, putting it in the blender and we're done? Or are, are there any other ways that you guys are, are, are tweaking this and making it a little different too? Yes. So I, back in 2010, I did do somewhat of a typical reinterpretation, yet you have to tweak the citrus. You have to tweak the sugar content um, for, for that cocktail to make it work in a blender. You have to be aware and cognizant of how all of these elements are are interacting and being incorporated 
in the blender jar. So you have to adjust things accordingly. But now, probably the biggest departure um, and what would be somewhat unique to my Ramos interpretation at the gem would be the use of pasteurized egg white powder um, instead of freshly cracked egg whites, which mm -hmm. all modern fizzes and, and uh, fizzes dating back to the 1800s would, would call for, uh, going back to our brace-ups. Um, and, and so the pasteurized egg white powder, in many ways, to me, was a great addition to this cocktail because it's shelf-stable, number one. Uh, number two, it lends a smooth and creamy aspect to the cocktail that does that, in my opinion, is not accomplished with a freshly cracked egg white, which you cannot quantify. Mm -hmm. When you crack the egg, you don't know if you're getting an ounce. You don't know if you're getting half an ounce. You don't know if you're getting... And the eggs nowadays are obviously born of various uh, hormonally mutated foul and are foul heavily, is the word <laughs> they're heavily affected by the steroids and whatnot um whereas back in the day the eggs were actually way smaller so um that is that is something that's difficult to mitigate and when i see the squeezy bottles behind the bar that go into a jigger that jigger's contaminated the squeezy bottle it looks like snot and mm -hmm. mucus and bile and bilious and i don't want to see that so i chose to go the route of the pasteurized egg white mm -hmm. powder which all chefs work with um and you can control exactly one tablespoon one teaspoon how much you want to you want to add so um not to mention the fact that this prevents us from needlessly disposing of egg yolks throughout the shift so if it were true that every time you cracked an egg white fresh to make a fizz or a traditional sour that you would then also make a flip right afterwards in the same round that'd be great <laughs> it's but just we, not happening. it's not true it's not true and so. also even though the fact that you have a kitchen there and a wonderful chef and wonderful kitchen team having been on the other side of that let me tell you there is no way us at the kitchen team can get through all these egg yolks that you're giving us because by the way most kitchens this is a lot of people won't realize this but when it comes to making sauces or for pastry or for ice cream they're using pasteurized egg yolk out the carton for those things. We don't want your fresh egg yolks because we don't <laughs> know. There might be a little bit of egg white still in there. There might be some shell in there. We don't know how fresh they are. We'll take it out the bottle and we'll pour and that's what we're using. So you know what happens with those egg yolks when they go into the kitchen? As I'm sure you're aware, they sit in the fridge in a container for a little while and at the end of the week, someone chucks them out. That's what I said to Chef Kirby. If I were to use fresh cracked egg whites in this Ramos that we're going to do here, would you have a use for all these yolks? And he said, how many yolks are you talking? I said, potentially hundreds. It, and it w wasn't, it wasn't feasible. Yeah. It, it wouldn't work. There's a, and, and, and yolk only scrambled egg is not as good as classic no. scrambled egg either folks, you know? So again, it's, it's nice, this idea of, yeah, well, you know, there's a symbiosis, you're working with the kitchen, but it just, in reality, it just doesn't work out, especially if you're putting this on the menu, as you said, on yes. the, and, and also it ain't the only egg white drink. So that's a kind of nice idea, but the powder fantastic yeah, yeah, and like so, you said very common in kitchens as well yeah and and if we're not learning techniques from the kitchen we're not our eyes are closed if you're working in tandem with such an incredible chef and you're realizing what's happening in the kitchen and you're not and and this is something that having never really worked in a restaurant bar 
prior to this experience, which was really new for me and, and a great yeah. pleasure. If you're not open and aware of what's happening in the kitchen, it simply makes you a better bartender to, to be a part of what happens in there and, and, and incorporate some of these techniques into what we're doing yeah. behind the bar. I'm not saying don't be going all molecular and whatnot no. if that's not your thing. Stick to the tenets of what you know, but with with a few tweaks here and there, you can vastly improve your cocktail program by taking a hint from what, what goes on and what the pros are doing nice. in the kitchen. So, um, yeah, so another ingredient that's probably not commonly found elsewhere would be uh, the addition of Chef Kirby's house-made charcoal salt, which he, he makes at, at Farmer and Sons in Hudson. So that was another thing that I chose to put so in. So tell us about that, because I think, you know, I'm assuming this is different from activated charcoal, which yeah, yeah, it's, which I think it's, I believe that people were using in cocktails, and then people were like, "Whoa, no, this actually activated charcoal can be dangerous." Yeah, so I think that's something completely different. It's different. Yeah, this is different. Um, so charcoal salt, right? We were experimenting R and I, I added it to the cocktail because I really I love the way it makes the citrus and orange flower water pop, and it really shines um, in in the Ramos. So. We could talk a little bit about why people are using salt in cocktails nowadays, and this plays into that because it, it does encapsulate, in a sense, what I wanted to accomplish with this particular cocktail and why I chose salt in general. The fact that Chef makes this amazing charcoal salt is also icing on the cake with regard to cocktails. So I'm sure you've talked about this and you guys have written about this, but uh, so salt enhances sweetness and, and balances bitterness in, in, in cocktails. and. Uh, at the same time, it really it galvanizes the, the sweet notes, but also the sour notes. And the reason for this, uh, my understanding is that sodium ions block the human palate's ability to effectively sense bitterness. So the addition of salt can make those sweet or sour notes more apparent. They, they pop, as I said. But um, what's cool about salt also is that it gives structure to egg whites in a cocktail. It, it, it stabilizes the, the protein chains. But how it does that is through agitation. And if that agitation is manual, shaking, that's cool. But if it's mechanized at thousands of RPMs in a blender, then you're really in business when it comes to that. So um, I think uh, probably the main reason why the, the modern bartender is so fond of the addition of salt crystals, and we talked about this when we did the Jungle Bird podcast. Oh, yeah, but, for sure. Um, but yeah, so salt crystals and saline solutions and whatnot in cocktails um, is because salt water remains much colder than regular water without freezing. So again, we go back to time and temperature. We're trying as best we can to mitigate these factors. So why is this happening? Well, it's because salt prevents the formation of ice crystals. And this keeps the water at a low temperature without the water turning into ice, which is great for our cocktails. Um, so yeah, the salt is still going to melt the ice, but it will lower everything to a zero degree Fahrenheit temperature rather than the typical 32 degrees. So this means that salt water is colder and this chills your drinks faster. So phenomenal. Yeah. So I think that that's another thing. And I just, I will, I will add one more thing about culinary and we'll go back to like culinary influences and why, why this is so important. And probably the most popular example of this from a culinary standpoint is ice cream production, right? So you're talking about this Ramos Gin hmm. Fizz is kind of like a grown-up milkshake. Yeah. So the addition of salt to the production process of ice cream or the typical 
uh, let's say the hand churned old school the old ice school cream method, production, yeah. right? So they're not they don't necessarily put salt in the mixture, but they put it. The, the role that it plays is that it, it assists in freezing the cream and butter fats in tandem. And how they do that is because the temperature at which the cream freezes is below the melting point of fresh water ice or fresh water. Uh, yeah. So when making ice cream with the hand churn method, it takes serious elbow grease because what you're trying to do is keep the ice frozen long enough to also freeze the cream. Mm hmm. Uh, and so, Without the formation of ice crystals, correct from the water content. Correct. You're so, you're, you're speaking to a man who <laughs> moved from professional kitchens, top professional kitchens in London, to a professional kitchen running a kitchen down in Argentina, and being told when I took over there, "Yep, you know that our our guests love our ice cream." I'm like, "Amazing! Do we use a Paco Jet here? Do we use an old school <laughs> ice cream machine?" Is that no chef makes it by hand? What do you mean makes it by hand? And the chef had long gone by that point. I was taken over. So, yep, learned how to make that old school hand churned ice cream. And yet it's exactly that. The more you can churn it, to, yeah, it's that's it. <laughs> it's a process. That's it. You add salt to the ice, you lower the melting point, you allow the ice cream to freeze, but you're doing it cohesively. So, yeah, so the way you, the way you did it and the way chef did it and the way whoever was making ice cream <laughs> 100 years ago or more, uh, would do it is that they would put the ice cream mixture in a container, but they would surround that container with a with a bath of salt water, so uh, salt to the ice. So that ice experiences what's called a freezing point depression, and that's just lowering the freezing point of the water. And and so essentially, this is the reason why water in the ocean doesn't freeze at thirty two degrees mm -hmm. Fahrenheit like fresh water. Which is also crazy because salt water will boil at a higher temperature. Than normal water, so I I, I don't get how when it, you make your macaroni, <laughs> why, exactly right. Like why are you adding salt to that? Obviously for seasoning, but also so that the temperature of that water is higher, so that you're cooking something faster. It's amazing. It's amazing, and that's why salt salary, like salt, literally was currency. Incredible, incredible, and all over the world in every form, and and so. Yeah, sal. So, so, so when you make that ice cream the old-fashioned way, or you make this Ramos this way, mm -hmm. what's happening is that the lower temperature will cool the cream to become solid faster, and that's what you want. You want it to be firm. You don't want it to be imbalanced. Mm -hmm. So, as we talked about, which is what we were conjuring previously in our decades-long pissing contest. So, <laughs> this is what I took into consideration. I thought. I'm combining cream, ice, and salt in my blender jar for my Ramos. And the main difference only is that I want to taste the salt. I want the salt to activate things in the cocktail. But if I was making ice cream, I'd, I'd keep it to the side. So, mm. <laughs> um, But yeah, you capitalize on those flavor-enhancing benefits and, and the cooling qualities at the same time. And, and and yours is a charcoal salt, so I'm assuming that the charcoal's there purely for a little bit, little bit of flavor, just a... You know, the, the difference between using, for example, a Demerara simple syrup with a simple syrup, right? The, the sugar has flavor there, the salt has flavor here. And it adds its flavor and, and, and it also gives it a cool tint, which I really, I like to see that, that sort of hazy, bluish gray tint mm -hmm. on, on the Ramos at the gem. And as you mentioned, because this drink is obviously not shaken, we also have to control the amount of crushed ice that goes into the blender. We're not just pouring an arbitrary scoop. Uh, so we do also have to keep in mind that that water content is 
extremely important because this drink isn't served in the traditional nine ounce, what we call a fizz glass. It's just a shorter highball glass that the Ramos is typically served in. We're actually putting it in a larger 12 ounce highball glass or a Collins glass. Um, And so that wash line has to hit. Wow. And then final part of that preparation, I mean, we're going to dive into the preparation in a second, but are you doing anything funky with carbonation and soda water? Are you keeping that more traditional? None. None. (laughs) Nothing, (laughs) nothing special. (laughs) That's good. You got to keep some aspects of it classic. Shout out to the Brooklyn Seltzer boys though, who uh, are amazing. The Gomberg family, incredible. Um, Worth a worth a podcast in and of themselves. Um, I see. I see yeah. the Dutch kills and beyond folks promoting these. That was and again, just not to harp back too much to my time in Argentina. But one thing I did love about being out there was that, for whatever reason, they sell their sparkling water, their soda water, in plastic siphons as it would have been back in the day. Obviously not glass, and they're they're, they're recyclable. But you know, you don't take them back and get it refilled or whatever. But Rather than just going for a bottle of Schweppes club soda, it's in the cipher. I mean, there's the, the Italian link there as well. I yeah. don't know. It's fun. They're, they're, it's amazing. This is what we use. Uh, this is the, the only charged water we use behind the bar at Dutch Kills. And aside from the historical relevance of this family's incredible generational dedication to their product, the, the bottles that we're getting are 100 years old. You can see people's logos from their seltzer companies from days of your actually there in your hands behind the bar if you break the bottle it's it's a tragedy but if you break the siphon that's the real problem because those are irreplaceable really so, um but there is no uh, an alex gomberg who runs the brooklyn seltzer boys company that coming from his his father and his father before him uh taught him that good seltzer should hurt that it should actually, you should feel it and it should hurt in your mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we feel that this is the best way for us to execute any such variety of cocktail with a superior variety of charged water. If we're going to use a superior variety of frozen water, we can't really mess around when it comes to our, our sparkling to reason. Uh, charged water. Yeah, so nice. Um, been a pleasure working with those guys. And they even now have a seltzer museum which is so dope on so many levels. That's cool. Down there in Brooklyn? Yes. Very nice, yeah. very nice. Um, all right, then I'm going to ask you if you're if you're willing to talk us through the preparation of this drink now, including the spec. Um, yeah, talk us through it as if, if we're bellied up to the bar there, up in Bolton Landing. Uh, we're, we're sat at the gem, and, 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 and we can't see a blender, but we know it's about to happen. Talk us through. It's about to happen. So one thing that's great about having that um, blender right there in your station just to the left or to the right of where you're building your other cocktails is as I said the jar serves as just another vessel so you jigger right into the blender nice. jar and you don't have to do any acrobatics to, to accomplish what you need um, as far as any given round of drinks they can all be built in tandem just like anything else so uh, the, the specs are really simple um, we split the lemon and lime component as the original cocktail called for um, with three-eighths of each. Uh, and then to get a more richer uh, texture... Three-eighths of an ounce? Of lemon and lime, yeah. Is that easy to jigger out? It 
kind of is because the you know the oxo jiggers that have like the uh they have like the rubber center to it it's yes that there's a there's a demarcation on the one and a half three quarter side of that jigger that gets you like a spot on three eighths um but the other way you can do it is like go short on a half ounce um but, that's okay. That yeah. that's that's a new one to me, and we're we're almost a hundred episodes in here, and that's the first three eighths of an ounce I've okay. come across. I love yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So that that's the, the you think about like three eighths and three eighths gives you three quarters. Yeah. So that's kind of so it's half a three quarter ounce. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. So you do that once with lemon, once with lime, mm-hmm. um, and then we go to our sugar con- uh, component, which is uh, demerara. So it's a two to one rich uh, demerara, and and this is because in the blender you're generating a lot of water content so i felt that with simple syrup although it was still valid um and interesting it was a little bit thin Mm -hmm. so uh this is a shy one ounce like a seven eighths ounce pour of demerara you don't have to don't have to go full meniscus on the one ounce just 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 a little little shy Yeah. yeah um cream being an important ingredient here so your one ounce of of heavy cream um i'm not going to specify like which organic farm you need to get it from that's your prerogative <laughs> um but uh yeah go go to your but it has to be heavy yeah heavy and then i use uh old tom gin because i i just think it it really it it's less of a juniper bomb and i don't really want that in this cocktail um i want it to be a little softer mm-hmm. i'm not going to say confectionery but it pushes that envelope a little bit so that's one and a half ounces so this this could be a low ABV cocktail, if you it, will. <laughs> Perfect for the morning. <laughs> yeah. um, quick side question here for you. Folks were, you know, either at their homes or at their bars, they didn't stock an old Tom. They don't want to buy one or maybe they don't want to add it to their, you know, to their menu or, or to their back bar. Uh, would you therefore go for something maybe that's kind of like a new Western American style without anything too funky in terms of fruit and weird botanicals, but... Dial back on the juniper is what we're saying here. I would. I would. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that that's necessary for this cocktail. Mm-hmm. So maybe a tank tan or something like a, maybe a, <laughs> a, an aviation or, well. Well, I, I would say. No, tank tan has, has juniper presence, yeah. but it certainly brings some other botanicals in there. Yeah, like so. If you're not going to use an old Tom, like shout out to Brooklyn Gin for sure. Like yeah. that, that's always going to work in this cocktail. That'll succeed in any cocktail mm-hmm. um i really enjoy that um if i was gonna go so that's not what i use that none of the aforementioned but I, because we're talking old tom but if i was gonna go like really interesting i would go for like a martin miller's or something mm. like that which which you don't see that much nowadays but but funnily enough i believe he was the correct me if i'm wrong i th- i think that was the guy that first pioneered the non-juniper forward right. style of gin right? right right which is why it comes to mind so, yeah and so that, that i think that's right yeah i mean that's it, that we now call it like new american gin, but it's yeah. actually martin miller yeah of 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 uh the same uh of british origin yes, i believe yes okay, okay. <laughs> when it comes to gin don't fuck with us guys <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um so shout out to uh to the uk and scotland mm-hmm. But uh, I, yeah, I also just find that it doesn't need to be that present in this mm-hmm. in this cocktail, the, the juniper bomb. So uh, yeah, ounce and a half of Old Tom, a lot of great options. Um, Bar Hill 
in Vermont, uh, really uh, interesting. Heyman's is the probably the most popular of, of the modern era mm -hmm. that most bartenders are touching behind their uh, on their back bar. Um, I don't mean to name drop too much, but I, I, I think that there's a lot of options and it's interesting. Um, Greenhook Ginsmiths, was good, yeah, yeah, really cool uh, option there for for some old time. So if you're doing this at home, kids. And by kids, I mean over 21. Uh, <laughs> or 18 or, if you're in the homeland. That's correct. Uh, and in Italy, who knows uh, nowadays. <laughs> but um, I would say experiment with whatever old time you have um, on hand. So possibly one of the more important ingredients in this cocktail traditionally would be the orange flower water. This can really make or break this cocktail. This can, this can destroy the balance. Um, and it happens and we have to be cognizant of that. Mm -hmm. So no more than four or five drops from a pipette. Yes. Yes. And you have to be, you have to be gentle and delicate there. So we say work fast, jig or slow behind mm -hmm. the bar. So if you're, if you've got your rhythm during any given shift and you're, you're really, you're cooking with grease, I would not, I would take a pause when it comes time to do your pipette with your orange flower water and just make sure that you're really, yeah. you're calculating. Like you have to see the drops come out and it's five and that's, that's it. Think of all the time you're saving on shaking here. Take, take the time. Take the time. Relax, mm -hmm. relax. Mm -hmm. All you got to do is, all you got to do is push a button. Mm -hmm. So, so then pasteurized egg white powder, one and a half teaspoons. Um, they make these really cool thing that chefs use all the time. They make these really cool uh, teaspoon measures, whereas you can take a scoop and then it levels itself, which is really, really great because then you don't get that heaping. Yep. You just kind of push the lever and it levels off, which is really helpful in terms of this drink. Um, then we have Chef Kirby's charcoal salt, which I'm sorry, but you probably aren't going to get at home or any other bar. So that makes this drink somewhat proprietary mm -hmm. and uh, prohibitive. But mm -hmm. uh, Head up to Bolton Landing. That's it. Come see us at the gem. Uh, and this is not a an accurate measurement. It is the tip of a teaspoon. I'm sorry. That's that's the way we do it. It's experience that's right ex there. That's it. It's, you know, that's what that is. You have to be gentle with this with this mm -hmm. tip of your teaspoon. Um, yeah, and then you blend it. You push a button. You blend it. But the the ice component, I should say, uh, is also somewhat calculated, but not entirely exact. So what we take is a slight heaping scoop of crushed ice. How big is our scooper? It's like the small one that you get at the restaurant supply store. <laughs> Can I calculate the weight or the ounces? I'll have to get back to you, but it is a... But off the top of your head, I mean, you're in the ice business. Yeah. Um, off the top of your head, what are you, what are you guessing here? If you were filling a two-ounce jigger, mm -hmm. so we're going by not and even... this is crushed ice, so, yeah. you know, you're not, yeah. So we're not even going by weight. We're not no, going. We're, we're not going doing volume it. Yeah, here. It's like wrong. It's, it's the wrong way to do it. But <laughs> if you're doing it that way, it's probably ten ounces, eight to ten ounces of crushed ice. Okay. In in like the small jigger, but it's like a heaping two. Yep. Ounce jigger full. Four times. I'd say four to six times, yeah, okay. but I don't okay. want to be. I don't want to be bound to this, Tim, okay. because I I go by my heaping scooper okay i don't go by the jiggers so I, you got you got to just come come to the gym and see All how right. we do this otherwise people will just have to experiment oh so yeah, yeah 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 play around with that as well yeah so it's not we're using a particular variety of ice it's the crushed ice that comes from uh what is known as a scotsman machine or an isomatic uh machine which gives you like that uh looks like the pencil tip of a pencil eraser the, the nugget ice so nice um but it's very fragile but very effective 
Um, and this is the same ice that we use in our fixes and our cobblers, our mojitos, etc. So beautiful. And then um, you blend it, and and then uh, so 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 sorry, you're you're not blending before you add the ice. Everything is going in together. You throw in the kitchen sink, and you hit the number five blender setting button. And the reason we 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 decided on number five was because uh, it gives you enough time. Number one to go and do other things <laughs> because it's the longest setting. What is this? Five out of what? Five out of five. Oh, okay. So, okay. So you yeah, can, yeah. You go, you can full get blast. full blast. You get your glassware, you do other things, you prep your garnish. By the time you come back, the blender has done its job and you may pour your Ramos into your glass, hit the perfect wash line, mm -hmm. serve your garnish. And Robert is your mother's brother. Little, and little soda going in there? No. Nada. No. Nada. No. Nice. Nothing. Don't need the soda. You don't need it. You're getting so much water content from from the, the, the right. ice alone. All right. Water content comes from the ice alone. You know what happens when you put carbonation into a shaker. Mm -hmm. Imagine when you put it into a blender. Yeah, yeah. But what's the point of the soda water anyway? I mean, that's a, that's a different episode, I think. But like, it's a, it's a, I don't know whether we'll do a third visit to the Ramachimphis, <laughs> but it is a great point. Like, yeah, why does that, what does that serve? I don't think it needs it. There's no Brilliant. need. There's no need. Brilliant. Um, any final thoughts on the Ramos Gin Fizz today or garnish? Oh, the, so we take a, we take like a an orange, long orange twist, and we roll it up uh, and put a toothpick through that. Stick a mint sprig through there. Pull the mint sprig through the orange twist, which, although I'm describing it in a way that may not make sense, would would resemble somewhat of like a rose. Uh, we pull the mint sprig through, so then it kind of looks like a carrot, mm -hmm. but that's okay. And then we stick a cherry on the edge of the <laughs> skewer, and then we gingerly balance that on the side of the glass. Beautiful. I'm sure there's pictures out there. I was going to say, I'm sure it's on the gem's Instagram right yeah, there. which I have no idea of what could be happening. He's actually lying. He uses, <laughs> he's, he kind of, he's been tweeting, he's on threads these days. Just, the whole time we're talking. Yeah, he's live tweeting whole this time, whole conversation whole or yeah. Xing, whatever that's called these days. Who knows? Um, any final thoughts on the Ramos Gym Fist today before we move into our... I'll go back to, unfortunately, one of my initial thoughts in this conversation is that I don't think I've ever drank an entire one of these in my <laughs> life and that I don't really like egg white drinks. I like well, to make them. Mm -hmm. I like to make them. I like to make them because it's interesting. It's an, as we said initially, it's a an challenge. It, it's an interesting cocktail. Fundamentally, of its ingredients and how it's prepared is interesting, and guests enjoy it, and that's all that matters. Beautiful. All right, then. Well, you know, we mentioned up top this is an episode of firsts. Uh, one such first being five new questions to end the show today. Questions 11 through six, 11 through 15 <laughs> for yourself. Um, so we'll see. These are, these are getting the first run out. Uh, looking forward to seeing how these are received. First of those, given that we have been talking about the Ramos Gymfist today, what's one other cocktail that you think bartenders too often shy away from making because of its so-called tricky preparation? Let me think. Okay. How, how shall I phrase this in a way that's respectful to those who actually enjoy the mm -hmm. cocktail I'm about to mention? I would say that my answer would be a, another drink that I don't care to ever make or <laughs> drink, and that is the Pousse Cafe. Yep. Uh, the, the famous layered. Yes. I, I 
think that that's probably something that people would find to be tedious. This is a drink that we used to make for fun with ingredients that did not taste good together at all uh, during periods of very slow business at Milk and Honey back in the day when we had nothing going on, no reservations. We called it stirred Sundays sometimes when uh, Naria Ramos was shook. Mm -hmm. um, and we would try to <laughs> build these Pouce cafes with things like chartreuse and grenadine and what have you and gauging the different weight. So that's another cocktail I think people probably aren't that interested in making because maybe it's challenging, mm -hmm. but also probably because it doesn't taste good. I was going to say, fundamentally, is, is, that was going to be kind of like, Kind of part of that question is like, does it merit that reputation, right? Because I think another one maybe that's like very low-hanging fruit for this question is kind of like the mojito. And it's like, A, not that hard to make and B, can be delicious. So shut up whining. Yeah. But this yeah. one probably maybe doesn't merit it. it and another one on that, on that note, the mojito, uh, the cobbler. The cobbler, if you, if you think about it as a cocktail in its, the sum of its parts, it's not challenging but the garnish and the way it's presented is a challenge. So you're, if you're really going to go all in full bore, do your cobbler right yep. and turn it into one of those gimmies. When you set it over the bar, it could just be a run of the mill routine sherry cobbler or any spirit you choose. If you've got all your citrus and your berries and your mint and your confectioner's sugar and your nutmeg, and you've got this cornucopia of a garnish <laughs> and this, bouquet of 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 fruit and 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 things from the garden and that sets down on the bar people are going to want that cocktail right away and a, a bartender who's busy is not going to want to go through all of that work so that could be like another element to this which is anything that has a complicated garnish mm -hmm. that's a fair point there but if you're gonna do it do it right do it right. And, and if you're <laughs> and if you're gonna work in a bar that proudly serves any of these cocktails just do it mm -hmm. just make them i think it was george michael and wham that first said that or am i making that up who said that if you're going to do it do it right i don't know maybe I, I'm like, I think that might be someone else <laughs> <laughs> but it's a it's a very salient point all right second question for us here today which cocktail creation or riff are you most proud of from your career up until this point and i know you're a humble guy but, I'm, but we're putting you on the spot here. We're asking. I don't invent many cocktails, certainly none that have been heralded and as widespread uh, as many of my peers and some of the people that you've had here talking about their, their original cocktails. I, I had a different answer that, I, that I, feel, I feel differently about now. I had a different answer just now that I thought about and, and I, I want to revise that. And thankfully, I did not say those words so that I can't, I don't have to actually backtrack it. But okay. I, I, in, in, in lieu of what we're talking about today, I will say that a drink that I think a lot of my coworkers enjoyed at the time that it was created by myself um, back in 2007 at Milk and Honey and Little Branch, and I probably made it at Milk and Honey because I think I had more time to experiment with, with drinks there. Um, although I was never interested in reinventing the wheel or even becoming a bartender with a slew of amazing original cocktails as quivers, uh, arrows in his quiver, I made up a fizz one day, uh, and it is not too different from the one we've been discussing, <laughs> yet does not require 
even 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 half the effort so you don't shake this for 10 minutes but i took uh a simple silver gin fizz which is what we talked about as the blueprint for the ramos gin fizz or the new orleans fizz um and instead of using simple syrup or demerara syrup i used orgeat kept the lemon juice kept the gin kept the soda kept the egg white didn't shake for a million years and did something somewhat not only unorthodox but unthinkable which was i added a float of amaretto Ooh. Uh, which we we used a ferretti biscotti liqueur um this drink was called the silver fox <laughs> so you can guess that uh <laughs> it's somewhat of an eponymous uh, name <laughs> Be- because as a much younger bartender that was my nickname uh at at, at work so i would say based on the conversation we're having today that would be the drink that i think would be uh my proudest moment because i think my coworkers really enjoyed it um and i don't see too many of them going over the bar nowadays so <laughs> maybe i will i will rekindle interest in that That's drink as a result of this podcast next time i'm in i'm in dutch kills <laughs> i know <what> i'm wondering <laughs> all right then and and again It's interesting because you know devising these questions somewhat catered towards yourself being the first person who's had this third set of questions but you know the first one kind of inspired by the Ramosjim fizz this third one here inspired by experiences at Dutch Kills here what's the secret to a brilliant bar playlist or soundtrack I will refer to our great friend our mutual friend Eric Alprin who says that the secret to a great bar playlist is to not include algorithms. Eric despises algorithms. He feels as though and I think this is a valid point that they pun intended they detract and they take away the soul from a playlist in many ways. Yeah. Not to say that there isn't a place for that uh and that this could be and such technology could be useful and helpful mm-hmm. to to a bar to 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 generate songs and music that fit well with that atmosphere but i do think that i i truly respect eric's um choice to rather than push play on an algorithm it's a great opportunity for you as a bar owner to rely upon the qualified ears of a talented musician or audiophile to curate a list for you now when you mention dutch kills we have a jukebox that plays actual 45 rpm vinyl records all night long that jukebox is free so in a sense our guests become the algorithm now that's both good and bad because they can play the same song <laughs> much to our chagrin right mm-hmm. uh that's why we have a reject button behind the bar that <laughs> skips to the next record so you have to you have to consider all these things but also but, you curate the the jukebox so you know there's not going to be any any stinkers come up in there or no we, we have some fun surprises okay. you see what we type the labels ourselves on my old typewriter in the office so we actually have the old jukebox labels that we've 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 gotten them and we've typed things that may not actually represent the record that plays and corresponds with that number. <laughs> so there are a few surprises in there. Interesting. And this this keeps life interesting musically and uh is a uh departure from the algorithm if mm-hmm. you will. Algorithms are to playlists what auto-tune are to vocals. I respect that. You know, too polished that where's the character? Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and I also think that there's ways around that too. If you are working in a bar and you don't want to use algorithms per se, but you are using a streaming uh, platform, as a bartender behind the bar, you can put in not a playlist, but an album. You can create albums. And you can also create your own playlists, of course. So that's mm-hmm. another wonderful thing that you have the option to do. <laughs> right. So you can DJ without the algorithm as a yeah. bartender. If you're feeling a certain mood, you might decide, I, I'm not interested in this right now. I'm going to play this album or I'm going to play this playlist. And so that that's another way. And what we do at Dutch Kills is the jukebox actually offsets the house stereo. So no matter what's playing on the house stereo, <laughs> if you walk over the jukebox and put in your song, that's going to override the house stereo and your jukebox record will play over the house stereo, cut it off and your records will play as long as they play. And when they're done, the house stereo cuts back on. So wow. algorithm or not, we, we There's give a nice mix there. Yeah. Nice. All right. Penultimate question today. If you could work one shift at any bar in the world, past, present, fictional or real, what would it be and why? I have a, an answer that you can challenge, and that's okay. I've already realized this dream, but you can, you can ask me again. But I've already realized this dream a few years back because I worked a shift. I attended bar one night at Sonny's Bar in Red Hook, Brooklyn, which was a career highlight for me. Um, and that, that bar holds sentimental value for me above almost any other bar I've ever been to or any other bar I've ever worked in. So that would be my answer, but you're also allowed to say that I have to pick something else. If, if it were anything other than Sonny's, <laughs> we'd have you answer again. But no, I think I think that's allowed in this scenario. Yeah, that that was uh, unexpected and very very special for me. Mm-hmm. All right, final question for you today, Richie. If you could change one aspect of the modern bar industry, the the, the bar industries we see it today that we that that you live and operate in, that I am tangential to. What would it be? Well, Tim, as you know, uh, I don't know too much about the modern bar industry. (laughs) Uh, So I I keep to myself and I mind my own businesses. I try to run a clean ship. I I try to do the best that I can, my my very best to take care of my people. Um, I don't take part in too many of these conferences or award shows, so I'm blissfully unaware of, of what people are doing uh, in general. But on that topic, I give a shout out to, to my boys from the Bartender's Choice Awards uh, and Perfect in Stockholm, Sweden, because they've, they've been doing their thing in that regard for over a decade. It's by bartenders for bartenders. Um, and I respect that. Um, but to answer your question, if I were to change anything at all, uh, I would call for a complete widespread revision of the multitude of legalities that prevail from the various bureaucracies associated with permits and all aspects of licensing that I feel prevent small businesses from realizing their dreams and subsequently engaging in commerce to the best of their ability. And that's a very academic response. But what I mean is it shouldn't be so hard to get your bar off the ground for Mm -hmm. whatever reason. The red tape should not hold you up and should not prevent you from making your dream come true. And I think that we need to, to analyze on a state and federal and local level in all ways the means by which we can bypass some of the roadblocks that have prevented a lot of people from becoming bar owners and business owners in general. 
I'd say that's something you could run on pretty successfully right there. <laughs> and I know I, we hear it a lot. It's, it's a frustration as well, just as someone covering the bar industry, just hearing about these things. It's, 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 it's a very valid point. And I know it's happening right now. We'll get into this in a different episode, I'm sure. But you know, I, I know it's happening right now in real time with outdoor structures in New York. And let's not get into that. But right. um, just the red tape and everything, it sounds like an absolute nightmare. And you guys being able to navigate it, it's truly, yeah. I think what happens, and this is another podcast entirely, I'm sure you'll, you'll, you'll have this as a topic someday, but the cocktail takes a back seat in many ways to the actual business of running a business. And this is what I think a lot of people don't understand. And when they encounter these roadblocks with the issues that they face with permitting or inability to secure funding or licensing, etc., it makes the entire process even more daunting. Service, hospitality is at, at a certain point a reflex because you understand your service model. You've been in service for so many years. You love your interactions with your guests. But these other things that happen, it, it separates the wheat from the chaff. This is why so many people are a unable to realize their dreams because of the bureaucracy they encounter, but also because they find that they don't have the salt for, pun intended, the ultimate <laughs> effort. Nice. I like that call back there. And Richie, thanks again for coming in today, man. It's been a real pleasure. Always. Cheers. Same to you, my friend. Okay, I know what you're thinking, folks. That was a lot of info. But here's the good news. Every single episode of Vinepair's Cocktail College is published on vinepair.com as a transcript. So you can check it out there all over again. If you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe. And please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded in New York City and produced by myself and Darby Seaside, who also composed our awesome theme music. Just give that a listen, folks. I also want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the Vinepair team, especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, editor-in-chief Joanna Sherino, and art director Daniel Grinberg, who designed our killer logo. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time.